今天经文朗读是《腓立比书》一章九至十一节。Today's scripture reading is、uh, Philippians,、um, chapter one, nine to nine through eleven.、Uh, I'm going to read in Chinese first. 我所祷告的，就是要你们的爱心在知识和各样见识上多而又多。使你们能分辨是非，做诚实无过的人，直到基督的日子，并靠着耶稣基督结满了仁义的果子，叫荣耀称赞归于神。Um, Philippians <coughs> chapter one, verse nine、um, to eleven, and this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more, in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Good morning. So can we just admit that sometimes the Bible is confusing, right? There's a lot of parts that are confusing. I remember I, I've been a Christian since I was a very young boy. My my mother and father shared the gospel with me,、um, explained to me my need for Jesus because of my sin, and that He was the only way to overcome that, and that I could have a relationship with Him. And I was about five years old. It was before we moved into my my second home.、Um, but I remember going to Sunday school my my whole life. I went to a Christian school from kindergarten to grade eight, and、uh, we talked about the Bible a lot. We studied the Bible a lot, but there are still some parts that are utterly confusing to me. And I remember back when I was a child, having、uh, confusion over a lot of different place names and、uh, and people's names in the Bible. And so, the worst one for me was the the Philistines and the Philippians and Philemon. And so I, I could never figure those ones out. And the first time I met a person from the Philippines, I was、uh, a little confused there too because he was a lot shorter than I expected, right? But that's not really good because actually, you know, Goliath was the exception, right? No, because Filipinos are not from never mind, from Philistine. But actually, the Bible's not not that confusing. If you have the faith of a child, it can be very simple. And if you keep the main thing, the main thing. Then you can understand the entire Bible in context, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament.、Uh, just on Friday, my second、uh, daughter was graduating from kindergarten. I don't know why we do kindergarten graduations,、um, but you know the whole thing of making building up self-esteem and everyone's the hero these days. I- I'm I'm very proud of her. Don't get me wrong, but you know kindergarten graduation is a little bit funny. But as we were getting ready in the morning、uh, for the kindergarten graduation, my wife, who is Naturally beautiful, anyway, was was wearing、um, a, a more beautiful dress and was beginning to put makeup on. And my daughter walked in the room and said, "What are you doing?" She said, "Well, I'm getting ready for for your graduation." Well, why are you wearing makeup? Why are you putting a dress on like that? And she said, "Because your graduation is very important." And Karis, my daughter, who is five years old, said, "No, it's not." <laughs> you know what's important, Mom? Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. That's what's important. That's the most important thing. And so sometimes it's just the faith of a child that just gets it. In the next five weeks, we're doing a series on the book of Philippians. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Philippi. 
and I've been tasked with the, um, the job of giving you just a general overview um, of this very short letter. It's actually one of the four letters that Paul wrote from prison. It's also one of the four letters that Paul wrote with the co-author, Timothy. And we don't know a whole lot about this. Have you ever listened to someone talking on the phone and you're trying to figure out who they're talking to and what the context is? All we know is in this very short letter that Paul has some things he wants to communicate to Philippians, the church in Philippi, and we don't really know his intent. We can't really say why he wrote this letter. I have a guess, and I'll get to it a little bit later. So Paul most likely wrote this letter in about 61 or 62 AD. Um, It's about 10 years after his first visit to Philippi, which was his first foray into what we know as Europe today. And so Paul was actually responsible for bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, and um, he brought the gospel into, into Europe through Philippi, one of his first stops on his missionary journey, when he was with Silas. And you may remember the story of Paul and Silas. As they were in Philippi, there was a demonic girl that could um, tell the future. And because of that, uh, she had some owners who were making money off of her. And Paul, after, it says, after days and days of him being followed around by this girl who kept saying, these men are from God and they tell you the truth, even in, in the face of that truth prophecy, he just got tired of it. It makes me think Paul was maybe, I don't know, maybe he was a patient man, maybe he just was sick of it. And he turned around and said, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And the demon came out, and the girl was no longer able to prophesy. And her owners, knowing this and realizing that they couldn't make any money anymore through this girl, were mad, of course. And so they brought him before the magistrate. And what did they say? They riled up the men of the city and said that these men are Jews, and they are doing or promoting what is unlawful for us Romans to do. Which reminds us that Philippi was an extremely um, loyal city or loyal uh, settlement to Rome, even though it was in Greece. Paul and Silas were sent to prison, and that's the story where they, they break out of prison. They don't break out. So the prison is broken by the angel, and, and the, the jailer is about to kill himself because if his prisoner had escaped, then he would be put to death, and so he decided to take his own life. And Paul said, wait, we're all here, we're all safe, we haven't fled. And because of that, the jailer, and it says his whole household, believed in Jesus because they were able to hear Paul's testimony. It was also in Philippi, just before that demonic girl, where we would hear about Lydia. Lydia was a seller of purple cloth. It was a very difficult process to make purple. In those days, they used seashells, and it was very stinky and, and ugly and everything, but it produced beautiful cloth, and it was extremely expensive. And so someone who was a a seller of purple would be a very wealthy person. And it was Lydia who was a follower of God or a follower of the way, and she heard Paul's testimony at that time, and she decided to become a believer in Jesus. And Lydia hosted, it said, the believers in Philippi at her home. It's very likely that this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi arrived at Lydia's home, possibly, or maybe the jailer's home. You know, they didn't have a church like this. They weren't renting somewhere, so they probably got someone's home. Philippi was a city named after Philip II of Macedon about four centuries earlier. If you know your history, um, I'm not a history buff. I don't like history that much, but in my second year university, I didn't get the, the cut in my Japanese uh, language class. I only made 78%, needed an 80 to get into my major and the only thing left was history. <laughs> and so I ended up with taking uh, ancient history. 
well, four centuries before this letter is written, Philip II of Macedon it names this city after himself, right? And so that's where we get the name Philippi. But what you may or may not know is that about 100 years before Paul's writing this letter, in 42 BC, there's a very significant battle that happened at Philippi. Anyone know what it is? I'll give you a history lesson, very, very simple. Usually, not always, but usually, when there's a battle that happens at a location, it's often called the Battle of, in the name of that location. Right? So the Battle of Philippi. And the Battle of Philippi was actually when Octavian and Mark Antony, or may know him as Marcus Antonius, chased Cassius and Etu Brute, the murderers of Caesar, Julius Caesar, right? They chased him there, and they fought a battle twice in 42 BC. And that battle was decisive of Western history. And what it did was it brought down the Roman Republic and brought a start to the Roman Empire. And Octavian, you may or may not know, was later given the name Caesar Augustus, who may be familiar to you if you know the story of Jesus and the birth of Jesus and the different things that Caesar Augustus required of Mary and Joseph and the whole of Israel at the time, the whole of the Roman Empire at the time. In fact, Philippi's name later on was called Philippi of Augustus. So a very significant city. It's significant in history, in Roman history, in church history, in our faith history. And after Augustus and Cassius uh, won that battle, they left a garrison of soldiers in Philippi. And it's also said that potentially there was, I think it was the 23rd garrison of Roman soldiers after retirement, were also left to retire in Philippi. And there were, there were uh, many, many soldiers, Roman soldiers that were loyal to Caesar that were in Philippi. And so what we get is a sense that this city, this colony of Philippi, was a very nationalistic, a very Roman city. And in fact, um, Luke, in the book of Acts, refers to it as uh, the first among prefects in that, in that area. Um, and, and Philippi itself could report directly to Rome. The citizens of Philippi were citizens of Rome by birth. So we're looking at a nationalistic, loyal to Caesar. There is only one king, and his name is Caesar Augustus. And you can imagine what happens when you bring a message of a different king, right? And you hear that even in the beginning of Matthew, other gospels, the story of Jesus. So I want to give you um, just a little overview of the whole book. Paul also wrote uh, this with Timothy. It says he's, he's with Timothy. It doesn't say much about Timothy until a little bit later on in the book. I'm not sure who wrote it. Maybe Paul, maybe Timothy, um, on behalf of Paul. But we know that he was with him at the time, although it doesn't seem that Timothy was within prison. Also, we know that Paul was in prison several times. Like I said, in Philippi, he was in prison for casting the demon out of that girl and causing a, a riot, causing a problem for things unlawful for Romans to do. He was in prison in Caesarea, and he was in prison in Rome at least twice. And there's debate, scholarly debate, about where this letter was written from, but it's most likely that it was written from Rome. And there's some recent theories um, that it was written from Rome in Paul's second house arrest at the end of his life. Why do we believe that? Because Luke is not mentioned anywhere. And we know that Luke was with Paul in the first imprisonment in Rome. So... And actually, if you want to uh, just look at your history of, of the Bible and the apostles, Acts of the Apostles, we know that, that Luke, uh, his home church, was probably Philippi. 
No mention of Luke at all, though. I want to just give you a little bit of a geography lesson. I love looking at Google Earth, um, and Google Earth is so helpful for this. So if we can get the video there, Tina, you can go to SMIM. <laughs> you know, some stories are set in places like Middle Earth or in other places, but this is set in, in Earth, and it's a true story. And here you can see in Jerusalem is the first place that we find uh, the Apostle Paul, who was then called Saul. And he was the one who took the cloaks of the people who stoned the deacon, Stephen, to death after he preached the gospel to them. And it's later on that he goes to Damascus, which is in modern-day Syria. And on the road to Damascus, Paul encounters a bright, shocking light. And it is Jesus Christ who says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's that event that changes Saul's life, changes his name to Paul when he goes into Damascus, and he becomes a Jesus follower. And here, you can't see it very well, but in Macedonia, just off of Greece here, we have Philippi. And then over here is Rome, where it's likely written from. From Damascus to Philippi, it's about 2,000 kilometers. Know that from Google, right? Can you imagine walking about 2,000 kilometers? The average pace of a man is, what, six kilometers an hour if he's jogging, right? And there was maybe horses, maybe there was donkeys, maybe there was camels. But Paul covered most of this map with his different missionary journeys. This letter to the Philippians is clearly a letter about missions. Okay, it's looping again. We can just go to the next slide. So a general overview of the book of Philippians. I know there's uh, four other gentlemen that are speaking on, I think, each chapter or whatever's happening afterwards. I don't want to steal your thunder, so I'm going to try and just do a just quick, quick overview of the book. From verse, chapter 1, verse 1 to 11, we have Paul's opening prayer. And he knows that he thanks God when he remembers these people. Okay? He's, he's known them. He was instrumental in leading some of them to Christ. And he's very thankful for them. He has joy in his heart when he thinks of this church here. And very specifically, he's got joy because of their partnership in the gospel, it says, from the first day until now. This tells us that the church in Philippi was actually financial supporters of Paul's mission and his livelihood, right? Some people talk about Paul as being a tent maker. But what most people don't recognize is that Paul only made tents when there was a time when churches wouldn't support him. And so it's important for us as a church to think about the people in the church at Philippi were supporting the church, they were supporting Paul's mission, they were supporting the gospel, and in that, they were partners with him in the gospel. They were passionate about what they spent their money on. Jesus said very clearly, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so they have first put their treasure in the gospel, put their treasure in the reaching of the, the, the known world at the time with the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And that's where their heart was. And so Paul was thankful and joyous. In his opening prayer, he's also confident that the one who began a good work in them will be faithful to complete it. That he has not abandoned them, that Jesus is ever with them, and Jesus has their best in mind. And whatever he's seen started in the church in Philippi, Jesus will be faithful to complete it. So that's kind of the first part of of the book. Then we move on to chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, and it's talking about Paul's imprisonment. This is one of the ways we know that he's in prison, and again, he's joyous and he's thankful because he says that everyone is aware that he is in prison there for preaching the gospel. He's in chains for Jesus. No one's confused. No one's saying that he skipped his taxes or that he was um, somehow some kind of a criminal of any other sort. The people were aware, this guy is really in love with Jesus. 
This guy is really concerned about Jesus' gospel, and that is the reason why he's here. And so even in his imprisonment, Paul is a witness to the people there in Philippi. Sorry, to the people there in Rome, probably in Rome. It also says that he's unsure whether he'll be released or be executed. And yet, even with that, he still has joy. You think about what he's facing. Possible execution or maybe be released, but he's got joy. And he even hints at preferring execution because to die is Christ and Christ is gain. This book is completely backwards when you think about it, right? He says that gain is loss, loss is gain. Later on, he talks about the giving of the Philippians to his ministry and his livelihood, and he says that you have not made a net loss. You've given away what you can, and God will provide even more for you, right? So Paul's theology is really well developed in here. His ecclesiology is well developed. It's definitely from later on in his ministry. He's aware of um, the Old Testament scriptures in his writings, and he's aware of the New Testament apostles' writings, or at least what the church had at the time. So even though he said that perhaps it would be better if he were to die and be with Christ, that maybe right now release is the better option because there are people here who need him, including the Philippians, the church in Philippi. Again, in 2.24, later on, he suggests that he's pretty confident that he'll be released and he will come to Philippi soon, right? But he still seems to have this sense of impending death, which is odd. You know, we think about this as the book of joy. And yet, despite facing these circumstances, being in prison, maybe going to get executed, not sure if he'll be released, Paul has this overwhelming joy as he writes to the Philippians because he has this fellowship with these people and he thinks fondly of them and he knows that he is in Christ and Christ has gained. Moving on to chapter 1, 27 to 2, 18. Paul talks about following Jesus' example and he goes on about how they need to follow Jesus' example. You should act in a way that is worthy of the good news of Jesus, especially in the presence of those who oppose you. And remember, in the place where these people were in Philippi, there were many who opposed them. Right? There were many of the the staunch Roman soldier background people that were citizens of that city who were opposed to any king other than Caesar. There were people who opposed them for all sorts of things. And we even see these mentioned throughout this letter. But despite that, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to act in a way worthy of the good news of Jesus. And this leads to sort of the the Messiah poem or the Messianic poem right in the middle of chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. And right here in this poem, I want to pause for a second because I think it, it encapsulates just the, the essence of what the gospel is and almost the whole historic um, vignette of, of everything that Jesus was from the beginning of creation until his death on the cross and then even post that, what we see in Revelation. It shows Paul's full knowledge of the scriptures of the Old Testament and he has an understanding of the theology of the apostles. So verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, it says, being in the very nature God. The word nature there is in essence what you are. Like my Ian-ness, <laughs> I am Ian, right? Our humanness, we are human, this essence. Being in very nature God, the same thing as God. You can recall 
the Apostle John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, being in very nature God. Jesus was God, established right here at the beginning of this poem. Yet he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Some translations say stolen. I like the word grasp here in the um, New American Standard. New American Standard version of the translation of the word kind of goes uh, thought for thought um, and, and includes word for word in that. So it's the most literal translation, probably modern translation of the original Greek and Hebrew. Um, and so I really like to go to that one. This idea of grasp it makes me think of Adam, right? At the very beginning of time, Jesus was God. He was in the very nature God. Then we see Adam. And Adam is tempted with this fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And how does the serpent tempt Eve? Did God say you really can't eat any fruit in the garden? No, he just said the fruit of this tree. And why not? Because God knows that when you eat the fruit of this tree, you will be like him. You'll be equal with him. If you grasp that fruit, equality with God is the thing to be grasped. And Jesus is referred to later by Paul as the second Adam, the way Adam should have been. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or it can be considered held onto. But he was willing to let go and humble himself. And we have echoes of Isaiah chapter 40 all the way to first chapter 55 of this humble servant that we know is the, the prophecy of the Messiah that is going to come. Jesus the humble servant, he humbled himself. He emptied himself, it says. Emptied himself, was humbly obedient to the point of death. Even death on a Roman death rack. And because he did this, therefore, because he humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, God exalted him. Another one of these weird paradoxes, right? What's gain is loss. What's loss is gain. When you give, you receive more. And because he was humbled, he will be exalted. And those who exalt themselves will be humbled. This is a recurring theme in this letter that Paul writes to Philippi. And then it says, God exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's a direct echo of Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, where God himself says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, equating Jesus with God. There's, there's nothing unclear about who Paul thinks Jesus is. He is fully aware that Jesus is the one true God. Moving on to chapter 2, verses 29 to 30, we see... We've just been told to follow Jesus' example, right? Be like Jesus. And now he gives two brief examples of people who he thinks are being like Jesus. And they're both with him at the time. One is Timothy. Timothy in 2.20, he says that he, Paul is highly complimenting him. He says because Timothy will show genuine concern and care for the welfare and the safety of the church in Philippi. Timothy was not a self-centered person. There's a lot of things about Timothy that we know from other parts of Scripture. We know Paul wrote two letters to Timothy later on. You know, Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. 
We know that his grandmother, his father, his mother were Christians. They were involved in ministry. And Timothy himself was one of Paul's uh, faithful assistants. He often called on Timothy to do special tasks for him. He says, he, has, he will show a genuine concern. I have none other like him. No one else that I know is like Timothy. Timothy is humble like Christ. And so Paul here is exalting him in the face of the Philippians, saying, Timothy, I want to send to you. The next one he talks about is Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus, this poor guy, was sent from the church at Philippi specifically to bring financial gifts to Paul, where he was. The church at Philippi knew that he had needs, and they sent Epaphroditus with these gifts to help fulfill his needs and to serve and attend Paul. And what happened? Epaphroditus gets really sick. Maybe on the journey, maybe when he got to Rome. But Paul says that he got sick to the point of dying for the gospel. And this wasn't some kind of traveler's diarrhea or something like that. Epaphroditus was, was genuinely sick. And it was because of that that Paul decided that he would send Epaphroditus back to the church at Philippi. And it's my suspicion that maybe this short letter was written to send with him to help ease the Philippian church's uh, hearts because they knew that he was sick and something was wrong with him. And so Paul here sends Epaphroditus back with this letter. Epaphroditus almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. That's what Paul says. You wanted to support me. I knew that you had, that, you know that I had this need. You wanted to give a gift to me, but you were unable to until now. And you sent this humble servant, Epaphroditus, to come and help me. So follow Jesus' example. Here's two examples of people that are like this, following his example. Timothy, Epaphroditus. And then next, in chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 1, we have Paul's example. And he says specifically in 3.17, join together in following my example. He reminds them that their citizenship is in heaven. And this is probably really significant for the people in Philippi. As you remember that they were proud of their Roman citizenship. They were proud of their Romanness. They were proud of uh, what they got, the benefits they got from that. They didn't have to pay the same taxes as other colonies. And Paul talks about all the reasons that he has to be confident in his flesh, to be confident in who he is and what he's done and everything that he's done to follow the law. And yet again, all of that he counts as, it says, filth. I didn't bring a picture. I was going to put a picture on here. There's a picture I found of a public washroom, ancient public washroom in Philippi. You've all been in places like that, maybe on a truck stop somewhere here in China, where there's not necessarily running water. And you think about a public bathroom, and the word that Paul uses is not filth. It's probably a lot stronger or harsher. I won't say the word I think is probably similar to because I might get kicked out of the church or something like that. But, but Paul's talking about your, all of this I count as garbage, absolute rubbish. Because it's nothing if I don't have Christ. And so follow my example. And Paul moves on. In chapter 4, verses 2 to 9, he challenges this church at Philippi to live the example, right? Here we have Jesus, who is the ultimate example of the humble servant. We've got Timothy, we've got Epaphroditus, and we've got Paul. And now I'm challenging you to do likewise, to live the example. 
resolving conflict, and being of the same mind in the Lord. How often do we leave conflict festering, hoping it'll go away if I don't address it? Right? It's biblical to resolve conflict. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul's reminding this church in Philippi to be joyful, to give thanks in all circumstances. Let your gentleness be evident to all. All the people that you're interacting with, each other, the Romans that you're with, be gentle in your communication. Be gentle in your relationships. Don't be anxious, but instead cast your cares to God, to Christ. And that results in peace that's beyond our understanding. This is extremely convicting for me. When I think about, I have so many things to care about, right? No different than you. We've got our jobs, we've got our homes, we've got bills to pay, we've got mouths to feed, we've got relationships to foster, we've got people to please, we've got conflicts. easy to be anxious. And Jesus talks about this as well. Be anxious for nothing. It's actually a sin. It's actually wrong to be anxious. To be constantly worrying. And why is that? Because when you're anxious, you're putting the responsibility to solve all of these problems on yourself rather than casting it to God. And God is the one who takes care of our needs. And when we take off the yoke that we're carrying and we take on his yoke that is easy and his burden that is light, we don't need to be anxious and we have this peace. There's a, there's a certain peace that comes when you know that you're in God's will, when you know that you're following Christ, when you know that you are carrying his yoke, the yoke that he's designed for you. doesn't mean it's easy. doesn't mean you don't sometimes have some worries or concerns. What about the bills? What about the mouths to feed? Well, Jesus talks about that very, very clearly in Matthew, right? We will be fed, we'll be clothed, we have everything we need if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then Paul goes on to say, let your mind be filled and focused on virtuous things. And I imagine that the church in Philippi in the Roman Empire at the time was probably struggling with similar things that you and I struggle with today. There's so many things vying for our attention and all of the anxieties in our minds and all of the distractions, social media, entertainment, my phone. Are all the things that I'm filling my mind with pure, righteous, worthy, Are they virtuous things? If they're not, I shouldn't be doing that. I need to be filling my mind with things that are worth thinking about. And then Paul says at the end of this, specifically follow my example. Whatever you see me do, whatever I've missed in my short letter that I'm writing to you right now, if I've missed something, just think about all the times that you've seen me and all the things that I've done and act that way. Paul is so confident that he has done the right thing, that he has died to himself and is living in Christ, he's confident that he's a good example. 
and that the Philippians can trust his actions and can trust what he's done. So we've got follow Jesus' example, the humble servant. We've got follow Timothy's example, Epaphroditus' example, Paul's example. Then you live the example. And then Paul closes this short letter, again with thanks. Thanks to the church in Philippi, specifically for their gifts, their financial support for Paul's life and for his ministry. When it's opening with that, and it's closing with that, it makes me suspect that that's a pretty significant part of his relationship with this church. In fact, Paul says in the first chapter that you have been there since the beginning. Since the beginning of the establishment of the church in Philippi, maybe Lydia, maybe the jailer and his family, maybe other people in the church, they were willing to bless Paul's ministry, willing to bless the church so that all of their needs were met as they gave, as they were able to, joyously. So that was a pattern that, that Paul suggests was established from the beginning of that church. And then he goes on to say that he has confidence that their giving will be blessed and will result in not a net loss, but a gain because God will meet all of your needs. So this, this odd paradox again. As we give to God's mission, as we give to the church, as we give to missionaries, as we give to the advancement of the gospel, it's not a loss, but it's a gain. And Paul's experiencing this because he's been partaking of this giving and receiving, that he says in the, in the first chapter. And so what about us today? I want to end it off with just three thoughts. The first one is we need to follow Christ's example. Just as Paul has challenged the church of Philippi, we as a church, we as individuals in the church, if we are followers of Christ, we need to be genuine followers of Christ, right? I don't call myself a Christ follower if I don't act like him, if I don't try to think like him, if I don't have him changing my life. And so what is it that we need to do to follow Christ's example? What is it that you need to do follow Christ's example. What has to change in your life? Christ gave a lot of examples. And that's why we have the scripture, right? It's not just to tell us how to have eternal life, it's also to tell us how to have life now. And it needs to be an important part of our daily food. And it needs to change our lives. I know I read the Bible a little bit every day on my phone. I don't read it enough. And I, there's a lot of things that I don't let change my life. And so I would challenge you to pray for me. And ask you if, you if you want to come and talk to me and ask me to pray for you. Pray for each other. How can we become more like Christ? The second one, just in the middle of this chapter 2, Paul talks about shining as lights. Some translations say stars. Lights in the darkness. This is an incredible echo. When you think about it, again, following Christ's example. The first thing God said was, let there be light. And there was. And it was good. When John talks about Jesus coming to earth, it says the light came and the darkness didn't recognize it. Paul's own experience on the road to Damascus was a blinding light 
the presence of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and place it under a bowl. Instead, it is put on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. And this analogy of light is there. Recently in my studying, I've been considering uh, an outside-in perspective. What, what do people who are not Christians think about we who are Christians when we talk about this? A lot of people are excited to be shining lights for Jesus, right? It's like flashing a flashlight in your face, right? But consider to the eyes that are accustomed to the dark, what is the feeling of a sudden bright light? In Paul's case, it was blinding. It didn't let him see. It was necessary for him. It was a miraculous appearance of Christ. My phone has a function on it. It's called nightlight. At a certain time of the evening, I can set my screen color to become less cool and more of a warm light. And as you are lights for Jesus, as you are shining like lights in the darkness, are you a harsh, cold light? Or are you a warm, inviting light? that people want to draw near. Because just as Jesus is the light of the world, Jesus has said, you are the light of the world. And it's our light shining in the darkness that will draw people to him. And third, I would just say, how is your partnership in the gospel? Often, the last thing people say is the most important thing. And Jesus' last words before he left his disciples on earth, he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. If he's speaking to his disciples... And he's teaching them to obey all they have commanded them, all he has commanded them. That includes that command right there. And we refer to that as the Great Commission, Jesus' Great Commission, that he wants to change the world, his light coming to the darkness in the form of us, the followers of Christ. And so how is your partnership in the gospel? How is your participation in the Great Commission? Some are called to go and preach the good news. Some are called to welcome people who come to them. Some are called to send. And we all as a church and we all as individuals should be involved somehow in the great commission that Jesus laid for us. So follow Christ's example. Be a light, a warm light shining in the darkness. And think about, are you going to go? Is that where you are in your workplace or your school or your neighborhood? Or your family. Maybe God hasn't called you to go. Maybe he's called you to bless financially like the church in Philippi. Someone like Paul who is going and sharing the gospel with other people. If that's the case, then give generously. Maybe he's called you to be like Epaphroditus and help by bringing help and gifts to those people like Paul. Maybe he's called you to be like Timothy 
who is a faithful servant like no one else Paul knew. He's not the confident preacher like Paul, but he's someone who would be faithful and would show by example that he is following Christ. Whatever that may be, it's my prayer that over the next four weeks, as we dig deeper into Philippians, that we'll understand more clearly what it means to follow Christ's example, what it means to be lights shining in the darkness, and what it means to be partners in the gospel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have access to letters that were written by your apostles, not just Paul, but others as well. I thank you that those letters are not just written for the church in Philippi or believers at the time, but there's a reason why we have them today. I thank you that you speak to us through your word. I thank you that you came down as light in the darkness, enabling us to see the truth, showing us the darkness in our own hearts. I thank you that you've passed that light on to us. Father, I pray that through this congregation, through myself, through my brothers and sisters here, you would provide all of the financial needs for this church and this church's participation in the Great Commission. I pray that you would bless each one here. Help us to follow your example. In Jesus' name, amen.